Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, my name is Lydia Kincaid, and I have Lee Harris with me. We are with IIM, and we are going to be talking to you all about venture capital today. Um, just some of the basic need to knows and some high level concepts that you'll come across if you're looking to invest in this space or if you're an entrepreneur just trying to learn more about getting into this space. Um, so, Lee, maybe you can kick us off at the very heart of it. Um, what is venture capital or early stage investing and why might an investor look for these opportunities for one? Why might an entrepreneur pursue venture capital? Sure. Uh, and I'm going to expand that, uh, that notion a little bit. Um, and, and let's start with the different phases of, uh, of, of venture capital. And, and we would start with what's called pre-seed, the pre-seed stage. This is where a founder uh, raises capital from his own pocket, as well as his family and friends. Uh, we call it the FFF, family, uh, friends, and, and founder capital. And that's important because uh, later stage investors are always interested to know how much skin in the game the founder has, and particularly how much bootstrapping was done. So. Uh, you know, that may be 50, 75,000, maybe $100,000 that, that's been raised that way uh, at the pre-seed uh, stage level. Then we have seed stage, or it's all, also called angel uh, capital. And this is really the first uh, capital that comes from outside investors uh, on, on an organized basis. Um, and that can range anywhere uh, in terms of amount from $500,000 to 2 million, we've seen it even more than that, but I think the sweet spot would be considered 500,000 uh, to a couple million dollars. Uh, and as uh, a founder is receiving that, that kind of money, typically there is uh, some dilution of ownership. So initially the founder starts out owning 100% or uh, he may give up some uh, to friends and, and family as well, maybe his, his or her team. But uh, once we get into the outside investors, uh, there's more dilution. It could be 15, 20 to 25 percent uh, ownership in that seed to, to uh, uh, or angel stage, if you will. Uh, then there are uh, we begin the Series A, Series B, Series C. Usually when you're in Series A, uh, the company probably has a, a minimally viable product that uh, they've found out if there's product market fit. Uh, they found out if they can generate revenue. Uh, and, and, and Series A is probably somewhere between $3 million and, and 8 or $10 million dollars. Uh, some of these numbers are a lot higher today than they used to be. It used to be, uh, you, you were talking two to $4 million for a Series A, and now it's probably three to $10 million for a Series A. And then Series B, and it can go Series C, D, E, F, G, whatever, up to the point that the company is looking to go uh, initial public offering, to go into the public markets, uh, or... Uh, perhaps there's a, a disposition somewhere along the line as a sale to a strategic partner or a private equity firm. Uh, and, and so you don't, you never know how far into the series uh, lettering uh, nomenclature you're going to get. And 
oftentimes uh, along the way, there may be what we call bridge rounds of funding. Uh, so a company's not quite ready to, to get to, let's say, Series B out of Series A, uh, and so they may raise a bridge round or the same thing from a, an angel stage to a Series A. And why would they do that? Well, uh, they need a bit more capital to prove concept or to hire some additional people, uh, whatever it takes, because they anticipate a much higher valuation of their company uh, when they get to that next stage of, of funding. Uh, so those are the, those are the, that, that's kind of the, the landscape, if you will. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, the reason that uh, this is necessary is because most founders don't have enough capital personally uh, to, uh, to, to take their company all the way to the point that it's ready to go IPO or, mm-hmm. uh, or be sold to a venture capital firm or a strategic partner. And so they need to look to, to other investors uh, for that capital. Now, you might ask, why don't they just borrow the money at the bank? And then they're not diluting themselves at all from an ownership standpoint. And that makes some sense. The problem is a lot of founders don't have the wherewithal uh, to go to the bank and borrow the larger sums of money that they're going to need uh, to, uh, to build their business. Uh, and they don't have the balance sheet they don't have the collateral and their company is just not worth uh, an, enough to, to pledge the, the ownership uh, to the bank. So usually uh, financing, while it's the lowest cost of capital and the, the, the venture capital, the equity capital that comes in is, is the highest cost of capital, that lowest cost of capital just doesn't exist because it's not available to a founder. Mm-hmm. And usually too, usually a really strategic partner. So maybe that is a company that's strategic or an investor that brings a lot of expertise in their industry or in their particular domain. That a lot of times is even more valuable than the capital that that investor brings to the table. Um, So maybe entrepreneurs need capital, but the really smart founders will find value add investors. I feel like IIM brings that to the table every time. Um, we do focus only on agriculture, animal health, and human health res- uh, companies for a reason. It's because we bring expertise to those three industries, and we can really help founders succeed, help open doors for them um, where they might not have the way to do that on their own. So I think that's sure. always really critical um, at the early stages, especially well, th- for companies. And, and I think it's important for our audience to understand what we are all mm-hmm. about. So IIM it stands for innovation in motion. And as you just said, we only specialize in three uh, specific verticals and uh, we don't uh, deviate from those verticals. And that's very rare at this early stage, this angel stage uh, of investing. Most angel stage investment groups play the field. Uh, they invest in, in a lot of different areas uh, and they probably don't have the domain expertise and within our investor group, we have domain expertise in human health, in agribusiness, and certainly in animal health. Uh, and as a result, we're not playing the field. Uh, we are acting more like a later stage uh, venture capital business, uh, but we're applying those principles to early stage investing, and we've done so successfully. 
so I think that's important. And we invest in Series A at the Series A stage as well. Uh, I, I, I think that's important for our audience to know. Right, right. Totally agree. Thanks for bringing that up. And, you know, you mentioned FFF founding. So friends, family, and founders, sometimes the word fools gets interchanged mm -hmm. with some of that as well, because that does tend to be the highest risk time to invest in a company when it's really, really early stage. Um, you know, also at that stage, sometimes there's accelerators that companies will join to help them connect with mentors and help them really start to scale and figure out product market fit. Um, accelerators or incubators as well. Some of those startup programs, which we tend to see prior to a group like us investing. Um, so this all sounds very high risk. A company might have to keep raising, raising, raising more money before they really get successful and, and make money themselves. So why would an investor be interested? Maybe you can speak to that, Lee. Yeah, so uh, obviously the earlier stage investments are the highest risk, as you say. And certainly part of our program is helping companies de-risk uh, as they move to the next stage. Uh, how do you de-risk? Uh, that means that you make sure your team is rounded out. You have a good founding team. Uh, we have made investments in companies that, that needed to add members to the team. And part of our investment helped do that, whether it's marketing, whether it's some sort of domain expertise, uh, you know, whether it's uh, something to do with their product uh, from a material standpoint or an intellectual property standpoint. Uh, so, uh, you know, de-risking is a really, really big deal. And as an early, the earliest stage, this is where we get, we think, the biggest bang for the buck. Uh, as you get into later stage investments, Series A, Series B, uh, that risk level theoretically is reduced um, and the return is reduced as well. Now, one of the things we want to do is, as a, an early stage platform is we want to have what are called pro rata rights to reinvest in the company. So as we move out of the early stage, we've made our investment. Uh, we go into Series A, we want to make sure that, that we have adequate capital to preserve and protect our pro rata share of ownership in that company. And, uh, and because we've already taken uh, significant risk with the initial investment, it only makes sense that we want to take uh, to make additional investments. Obviously, we're seeing that as, as the risk uh, declines uh, on the on the risk scale. Uh, so why do we why do we want to do it at the earliest stage like this? We want to do it because uh, that's where the highest return is, and and we are all about managing risk. We will not take risk. Uh, there's a big difference between rolling the dice and just taking risk. Uh, and again, I say over and over and over, we manage risk. And we do that principally through very, very, very stringent due diligence that you often don't even see until later stage investing occurs. And you have a team that assists you in, uh, in those decisions. Fortunately, to date, we've invested in 13 companies. We have several more that are uh, in a phase of due diligence. We've made 19 investments so far. Uh, since what 2016, I think is when we made our first investment, and we've had no companies that have gone out of business. 
that's another rarity at this stage of, of, uh, of capital. Uh, a lot of the more generic types of, of angel uh, seed stage platforms, as I said earlier, they're playing the field, they're investing in all sorts of things, and they have failures. And we have invested in far fewer companies, but the companies we've invested in are, uh, are prospering and nobody's gone out of business. So uh, de-risking, managing risk uh, at, at this early stage is kind of our secret sauce, if you will. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Lee. And I think our, our due diligence process is robust. Um, we invest alongside venture capital firms most times when we invest because they are usually the lead investor. And the lead investor means the group or the firm that is literally leading the round. They've usually invested at least half of the rounds so that the company's raising $2 million. That lead investor invests around a million dollars and then they fill out the rest of the round with smaller investors, maybe four or five other entities um, to fill the round. But when we invest alongside those venture capital firms, usually they will share some of their diligence materials or we will collaborate with them. Um, and I would say that our due diligence is pretty close to being on par with some of those later stage venture funds as well. We do take a really, really close look at these companies and get to know the team, um, really look at the market statistics and see what's happening from a competitive point of view as well. Um, but in addition to our due diligence process, our investor base is so involved in our process. And that's really where that domain expertise comes through. Um, and we are able to quickly look at companies and decide in fairly short order if we're interested in investing or not just based on their value proposition. Because um, maybe an entrepreneur thinks they're solving the biggest problem ever, but maybe there's people in our group who say, mm, actually, not so much. There's already a hundred other companies doing this, or there's a hundred other companies that have failed and this one isn't even differentiated. So I do think we are pretty unique from that point of view as well with the value add that we bring um, with the industries that we focus on. So another piece I wanted to chat about today um, is the question I get from entrepreneurs a lot. So how do I know when it's time to raise venture capital? Um, and usually what I coach entrepreneurs on is to really think about, for one, what type of business are you building? Are you building a lifestyle business or a true company that's we call venture-backed business? So a lifestyle business could be a really great and successful money-making business, but there's not necessarily an, a pathway to an exit, which would we like to see some sort of um, acquisition, or maybe it's going IPO, as we say, or going on the public markets where investors are gonna get outsized returns from their investment. Our investors for IIM, we don't want just a quarterly or annual dividend. We want a really big return um, based on the higher risk that we took. So, so I always encourage entrepreneurs to think about the type of business that they're building. Um, Libby, also, let, me, let me ask you how big, how big of a, a return do we look for? Uh, so give people some, if, if we invested, let's say we invest $300,000 in a company, sure. uh, how long would it take uh, before there is uh, an event of, of uh, a capital event, as we call it? Uh, and how much, how much would be ideal uh, in terms of return to us? Sure, sure. So we expect on any given investment opportunity, we expect to make 10x to 20x return on our money. So that that equals out to if you're thinking about a five to seven year horizon, maybe longer, um, likely longer for a lot of the earlier stage companies, 
that usually equals out to about a 27% IRR. So that'd be the annualized return that yes. an investor would realize over time. Um, now you could always have an outlier that gets you way more than that, um, but there's going to be some failures as well. So what we like to look at, um, we like to, like to look at the whole portfolio so that maybe out of 10 companies we invest in, there will be one or two that go really, really big. And we really generate those outsized returns knowing that there's going to be other failures, maybe that don't return any money or some that maybe our investors make a little bit of money on, but it should even out on the portfolio level to around a 27% IRR is the goal that we're reaching for. Well, and uh, so if our 10X is on a $300,000 investment, $3 million, mm -hmm. uh, by contrast, when you're in the Series A space, if you're a venture capital firm that focuses on Series A, or even Series B, uh, that multiple is more like a three to five times. Right. Uh, so they're investing more. So let's say they're investing $2 million at that stage. Uh, a 3X would give them $6 million. A 5X would, would obviously give them $10 million. So you can see uh, as you move down the uh, down the road in terms of the series uh, fundings, uh, that multiple probably, that multiple expectation anyway, gets gets to be a bit less. That's why we love this early stage space. If we de-risk, if we manage the risk and can uh, achieve that 10X return, that's the, the most ideal situation you could ever expect. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad you brought that up, Lee, because from an entrepreneur's perspective, I think sometimes they get so excited about the product that they're creating or the service that they're offering that they forget that what's important to investors is that return. Like, of course, we want to help the company and solve problems and, and change the world, but we're investing capital to make money back. Um, right. So I, I think entrepreneurs having that mindset as they're thinking about raising money and being able to explain and create a vision for the company that gives investors confidence that there's a high probability of success. I think that sets up the entrepreneur and the company for a lot better success on the fundraising route. Um, some also uh, some other items that I would consider entrepreneurs to consider if they're thinking about raising venture capital is what really differentiates your business. How do you tell your story to investors as well? Because it's going to have to be compelling. Um, and also start earlier than you think. It's going to take longer. You're going to need more money. Um, I think the best way to do it is to start talking to investors as early as possible, as in before you're even raising money. So then your first FaceTime with them isn't asking for a check. Um, it's just sharing what your business is, seeing if they have advice, um, seeing if they might help open doors and make connections for you to help grow your business. And then when you are ready to raise capital, you're not a stranger to that investor. Um, most investors that I know are always looking for deal flow. And so we're always looking to talk with entrepreneurs, even if they're a little bit earlier stage than what we typically invest in. Did you want to add anything, Lee, to what, well, what think, entrepreneurs should think, think about? Yeah, I think you mentioned something a few minutes ago about problem solving. And uh, you could look at it this way. Um, is their product or service a vitamin pill or a painkiller? Uh, a vitamin pill, we, it makes our life better, but we don't have to have it. But when we're hurting, that painkiller is critical. And we are looking for companies that have a problem they're solving in a way that's a painkiller. Uh, 
do, do um, vitamin pills work in the startup world metaphorically? Yes. But again, back to the whole notion of risk, uh, when, when you have a, a painkiller that absolutely everybody needs for whatever reason, you're assured of much greater success than a vitamin pill. And particularly in, in market cycles, vitamin pills go away sometimes because people can't afford them or they, uh, or they don't want them anymore, or they tire of them. But that painkiller is always uh, tried and true. So I think that's something that's important. I also would tell an entrepreneur that pay a lot of attention to the team that you assemble. Uh, we like to see a couple of founders, at least, a founding team rather than a, than a single individual that's the founder. That doesn't mean that, 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 that there's not a lead in, in, in that team, but it's always good to have multiple folks on the team where they can bounce ideas. And uh, if somebody's headed off in the wrong direction, the rest of the team has permission to, to try to bring them back into the fold a bit. Uh, so, and, and that team is important in terms of, of expertise, uh, diversity, uh, and, and that's, that's something we really look hard at. So as an entrepreneur, uh, before you start talking to venture firms like ours, make sure you have a solid team, or if you need to add to the team, and that's part of your capital raise is we need to, to raise some money so we can, uh, could bring in a, uh, chief technology officer or whatever the case might be, that we understand. And uh, we'll ask a lot of questions about who they're, uh, what's the profile of person they're looking for, uh, where they're looking, that sort of thing. Uh, but that's, that's important. Uh, and then, of course, one of my questions I always ask when we're having a pitch uh, session with, a, with a, a company is, what's, what's your exit? What's the, the plan to exit? We've heard, uh, not often, but we've heard, well, we're going to build this business and keep it forever. And guess what? That's not of interest to us. We want our money back and we want it back as soon as we can get it back. Usually we're looking at six, seven, eight, nine, even 10 years. Um, but, uh, you know, we have possibly three to five year horizons with some of our companies as well. So what's the plan for exit? Is it is it an IPO? Is it a, a strategic uh, partnership with a with another company in the industry that's uh, uh, potentially a large customer of some sort? Uh, what, do you, what what is the plan? And if a founder hasn't thought that through, that's less attractive to us than someone that has. And even if an entrepreneur has a plan that doesn't work out. I mean, we know it's not going to work out. We know things are going to change, but what we're looking for is that they have thought about it and there's a vision there and there's a plan for execution. Um, it, it really isn't a good look for someone to say, well, I don't know, haven't really thought about it. Or it's just that preparation piece is really key in having that plan in place, even if it changes, which it will. That's right. So, you know what? I think we're at time, Lee. Um, we really appreciate you all listening in today. We're going to go into more detail in future podcasts. So podcasts about term sheets, about different ways to pitch things not to do. And we'll go on from there. We might even have a few founders as guests on some of our podcasts. So thanks again, everyone for being here today. And we'll talk to you next time.